All right, good evening. That was fun. <clears throat> Lots of fun. We're going to get more of you up here for that as time goes on. So, Let's open our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 9. We're going to look at that whole chapter tonight, Lord willing. Study we call Elohim has left the building. Elvis has left the building is a phrase that was often used by public address announcers following Elvis Presley concerts to disperse audiences who lingered in hopes of an encore. Al Devoren, a concert announcer who traveled with Elvis throughout his career, made the phrase famous when his voice was captured on many of Elvis's live performance recordings. It was originally used by a promoter by the name of Horace Lee Logan, December 15, 1956, to plead with concert goers not to leave a concert hall to try to see Elvis as he left, but to instead remain to see the other acts. The full quotation was, Please, young people, Elvis has left the building. He's gotten in his car and driven away. Please take your seats. But it's grown in its popularity. Now we frequently uh, say that <clears throat> when things have ended. Now, in chapter 9 of Ezekiel, God was leaving His building. His glory was departing from the Holy of Holies in the temple at Jerusalem. It was still fully six years before the third and final siege against Jerusalem would end with the destruction of the temple and the slaughter of many Jews. But from God's point of view, it was so certain that it was really already over. In verse 3, we'll read that the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And so this idea of the cherub, this is, as you remember, this, these are the cherubim that were carved and over the mercy seat, on the mercy seat, over the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God's presence dwelt among His people in the Holy of Holies. And that glory is beginning to depart. The Lord continues moving away from the sanctuary in chapter 10. Let me read that to you. It's chapter 10, verse 19. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. And so now they're all the way out to the east gate. Then in chapter 11, the Lord exits the city itself. That's 11, 22, and 23. So the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was high above them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. And so it depicts God moving from the Holy of Holies out through the gates of the temple, out of the city itself, uh, and on the mountain east of the city. Prompts us to ask, can God's glory depart from a church? Well, Jesus warned the first century church at Ephesus that if they did not repent and return to their first love for Him, He was going to remove the power of their testimony. He said that He was going to remove their candlestick, which meant that they would no longer have light. He would no longer empower their witness. Uh, they would have a name that they were a church, but they wouldn't really have the Lord in their midst. And He told the church at Sardis, in the book of the Revelation, that even though they had a name that they were alive, he said, you're really dead, spiritually speaking. So let's follow the Lord as he departs the temple in the 6th century with an eye towards avoiding his removing the power of his testimony or of our falling into thinking we are alive 
when we are really dead. And so verse 1 of chapter 9, Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. When we last left Ezekiel, he'd been transported by the Spirit in a vision from his home in Tel Aviv, Babylon, to the temple at Jerusalem. There the Lord showed him a number of abominable, idolatrous practices being performed by the Jews, by the elders, by the priests, by the men and the women uh, in various sections of the temple. God's long-suffering waited for the people to repent. He more than waited, He warned. But the time for waiting and warning is now ended. He called for six men who by their description and duties we understand to be angels. They are said to have charge over the city. Now every now and then we get a glimpse of the spiritual world all around us. In the book of Daniel we see that the angel Gabriel was detained by a mighty demon called the Prince of Persia until Michael the archangel came along and they did kind of a tag team wrestling there, you know, it's like, and so Michael took over so that Gabriel could come and tell uh, Daniel the answer to his prayer, give the famous prophecy of chapter 9. Elijah asked God to open the eyes of his servant to see that there were heavenly armies surrounding and protecting them. Here in Ezekiel, we see that six mighty angels had charge over Jerusalem. Reading about these things, some believers have concluded that there are what they call territorial demons. And they go farther and say, well, we have to identify them and go to spiritual battle against them. That's a huge unscriptural leap into weirdness. Uh, It just is. The fact that God shows you something doesn't mean you're to do anything about it. Uh, You know, Daniel didn't even know this was going on until Gabriel just nonchalantly said, well, I would have been here sooner, but man, the prince of Persia had me until Michael came along. And Daniel didn't launch a territorial spirit ministry uh, at that point. He didn't think, oh, if only I had known the name of that territorial demon, uh, you know, we could have been uh, through this a lot earlier. Angels fight angels. We do not. If you want to do battle, you're told how to do battle in the Revelation where we read of God's saints, quote, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Want to fight demons? Walk with the Lord with a good testimony and be willing to give all of yourself serving him. There's no need to get the names of territorial demons or to get uh, to, to focus at all on that kind of aspect and so and and, you know it's a good lesson for just because God mentioned something he doesn't tell you to do anything about it Uh, there's there's no exercise in going against these particular spirits are there territorial demons in hand are there demons in Hanford sure are there angels in Hanford sure are they doing stuff that we don't understand absolutely what should we do we should overcome by the blood of the lamb uh, the power of our testimony, and we love not our lives unto the death. 
uh, essentially we just walk with the Lord every day, share your faith, uh, walk in purity, look for the return of the Lord. That's what the Lord is carrying us, uh, is calling us to do. Now, the angels who had charge over Jerusalem were reassigned to carry out judgment against the Jews. They came with battle axes, and in a moment we'll see that they go through the temple and the city slaughtering Jews. Now, the angels don't literally slaughter the Jews. The Babylonian army is going to do that when the siege ends and they breach the walls. So what's being conveyed in the vision is that the real protection of a sanctuary or of a city is God. The real protection of a nation is God. And the real judgment against the people comes from God regardless the agent that he uses. And so God says, hey, from my point of view, strictly looking from a spiritual point of view, this, I've been protecting you and now I'm going to judge you. In the reality, it's the way it's going to work out physically, in the physical realm is Babylon is going to be my agent of judgment against you. <clears throat> but everything is essentially spiritual. You're introduced to a seventh person, he is armed, as it were, with an ink horn, which is a small case with writing implements in it. And we're going to be very thankful in a minute that he was there. Verse 3, Now the glory of the Lord God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, where it had been to the threshold of the temple, and he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's ink horn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, Put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Some among the population of Jerusalem were grieved by the sins of their fellow Jews. They sighed and they cried over all the abominations that were being done. Are you sensitive or are you desensitized? The world, the flesh and the devil... They're all working overtime to desensitize us to sin. The Holy Spirit, however, lives within us. He remains sensitive to sin. Let Him lead you in a path of righteousness along the narrow path that's filled with the joy of the Lord. Uh, you know, it just kind of numbs your sense. You ever been to a loud concert? You know, and you're just after a while, you're just like. And then you go out and you can't hear anything. You can't move. Your whole body is just affected. You know, That's the world that around us on a spiritual level. It's just bombarding you with images and philosophies and misunderstandings and all the kinds of things that you see, whether it's advertising or, or whatever. And just in, you, know, you get up with all you know, the, the understanding that you're going to go through your day and just serve the Lord, and the next thing you know, you're confronted with the world, and it just keeps coming at you relentlessly. And I would say that, I would probably say in all of our lives, we've grown less sensitive to certain things. Uh, you know, and, and I know sometimes I think back and I think, you know, when I first got saved, this was a real big issue. Have I matured or have I just become desensitized to this? Uh, and and it's, a, it's a reasonable question because that's what the world is trying to do. Well, that, that's not really so bad. You know, it's, it's, you know, you would have thought it was bad 10 years ago, but eh, it's all right. Everybody's doing that now. It's, it's common among Christians, and so that makes it all right. And so the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, he remains sensitive to sin. If you and I are not grieved about sin, then chances are we are grieving the Spirit. Sin is only pleasurable for a season. In the end, it brings death and destruction. 
We need to be people who look past the moment to eternity. Now, what is this mark of the blessed, we might call it, that is being put on? Well, scholars say that the, world, uh, the word, rather, translated mark, is just the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, pronounced tav or ta. It's a simple mark, two crossed lines similar to an X. And so it's just, it's just the, you know, he's just going through and he's just marking uh, these people. Some have tried to insinuate that this was an early form of the cross, uh, but that's probably going farther than the text goes. I mean, we might see that, uh, you know, knowing what we know about the New Testament, but uh, it, it's just the Hebrew letter Tav. Those marked were saved from slaughter. Verse 5, To the others he said in my hearing, Go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. Now, when reading this, the emphasis needs to be on the sin. You know, I mean, you read this and you think, wow, this is awful. This is awful. God is killing women and children, old men. Uh, I mean, this is awful. Yes, what is awful is the reason that these people are being killed, and that is sin. And the fact that they could have done something about it, that God had done so right in the very sanctuary is where God had done something about it. And they said, well, yeah, we don't want that. We, we don't care about the atonement. We don't care about the blood of the sacrifice because we have these other idols and, and these other things that we want to do. We want to have perverted sex out in the groves while we're worshiping these uh, idols. And we want to sacrifice our children to Molech. Uh, and we, we want to do what the other you know, nations around us are doing. And we want to have Jehovah too. That's fine, I guess, is insofar. But we don't want to be Jehovah freaks. You know? we, we want to have a balanced, uh, comparative religion approach to things. And we don't really need the atonement for sin. And so God says, well, it, it, the emphasis here is on sin. Sin is an equalizer of persons. It brings death upon you, no matter your gender or status or age. The wages of sin is death, and we all deserve it, young and old, male and female. God made a way for mankind to atone for sin in the sanctuary, but they had abandoned it when they abandoned him. Now he had to abandon them to the natural consequences of sin. Uh, and it's as simple as... So, yeah, is it awful that old men and young men and women and children would be killed? Absolutely. Why were they being killed? Because they didn't want to have atonement for their sin. They, they rejected God's atonement for their sin. And so, you know, everybody blames God, uh, but He's come down into our reality. You know, Adam and Eve sinned, and God said, I'm going to absolutely do something about that. And, and what I'm going to do, you could never figure out in a million years. I'm going to come as a man, I'm going to take your place, I'm going to die in your place to satisfy the holiness that the universe deserves. I'm going to rise from the dead and all those who believe that, we can be together for eternity. I can restore the fellowship that was lost. And there are just people who say, so what? Who cares? There's so much in the world that I want to do and see and experience and who knows if that's even really true anyway. And, and God says, look, this is it. This is the way. The truth. This isn't a way. 
there aren't many ways, many paths. This is it. Uh, and, and God has a way of getting this message to us. And if people reject it and they die, you know, they don't want what God is offering and, and the wages of sin is death. And so the emphasis really needs to be on sin, uh, not uh, on, on God killing people. Verse 7, then he said to them, uh, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and killed in the city. The temple was going to become a morgue. Piles of the slain were to be dragged into its courts. It would be quite literally a dead church. When sinners who need Jesus come into the church, when sinners who need Jesus come into the church, we are a hospital for them. Remember, when I was a young Christian, you know, there was a, everybody always you know, said, you know, they say Christianity is a crutch. It ain't a crutch. It's a whole hospital. And you think, yeah, right on, you know. The, the church is a hospital for hurting people. But when saints come into the church living in and practicing habitual sin, then the church is a morgue. It's, it's a place of death. Uh, God doesn't want our ritual. Uh, he wants a relationship with us. In verse 8, so it was that while they were killing them, these guys, I have to say, these are they're axe murderers. Uh, <laughs> right? They have their battle axes. I've told you this story before, haven't I? We always, whenever we were talking to the kids when they were little, well, they, actually they were older and they had some freedoms and, you know, they always wanted to go place. Oh, we want to go here and do that. And we'd say, well, you know, it's kind of dangerous there. And, and we'd always say, you never know when there's going to be an axe murderer and stuff, you know. And then occasionally through the years, I mean, it's kind of gruesome, but every now and then there's a, you know, there is a Lizzie Borden, uh, you know, there's a real axe murder that takes place and stuff. And these guys, they were biblical axe murderers, you know. Not murderers, however, because they were executioners. I call them angel-cutioners. I've, just my own little word that I've made up. And so it was, while they were killing them with axes, I was left alone. And I fell on my face and cried out and said, Ah, oh, Lord God! Will you destroy all the remnant of Israel and pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? Now, didn't God just instruct these angel cushioners to spare the marked men and women and children? Well, yes, but Ezekiel was fearful that they would be caught in the carnage. Carnage is coming. It isn't the Mayan prediction of 2012. Bad things might happen in 2012, I don't know. But that's not what we're talking about. What's coming is God's promise of the time of Jacob's trouble, what we call the seven-year great tribulation. We will not go through any portion of that great and terrible time of trouble that is coming upon the earth. But in the world, until that time, we will have tribulation. It may be tribulation, as we say, with a little t, but it can, uh, it can seem awfully major when we are going through it, when it affects our lives. The Lord knows those who are His. Believers are said to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. And I quote from Ephesians 1, it says, He is a guarantee, uh, deposit rather, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. The picture of being sealed with the Spirit in the New Testament is one of ownership and possession. God has promised eternal life to all who believe in Jesus Christ. And there's a guarantee that He will keep His promise he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell the believer until the day of redemption. And so when you're born again, the, the boys talked about being born again. When you're born again and God's Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you, 
part of his ministry uh, is to seal you. And what that means is it guarantees you that God is going to complete what he started. It, it's, it's God's, in another place, it, it, it's pictured as an engagement ring. It's God saying, I'm giving you my spirit to guarantee that we're going to finish what we've begun. Uh, and so uh, there's a connection. These people were marked in the Old Testament. We are even more so sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, prior to Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, the Holy Spirit had what we might call a come-and-go relationship with people. The Holy Spirit indwelt King Saul, but then departed from him. Then the Spirit came upon David. After his adultery with Bathsheba, David feared that the Holy Spirit might be taken from him. All of this changed after Jesus' ascension into heaven. The Holy Spirit began permanently indwelling believers. This permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of God's promise to always be with us and to never forsake us. Angels and demons can see we have been sealed. It's like a mark. We are marked men and women. Uh, and, and so it's kind of interesting. You know, uh, you know, when you're... I know a lot of times when, we're, uh, when we'd be on missions trips, especially in China, which, man, you know, I know some of you have been to China. China, when I went to China, it was the darkest, most... If there are territorial spirits, they're trained in China. It's, it's like, you know, they, they're just... It's a training, especially Beijing. It was a dark, evil place, you know. Uh, just terrible, but but you know w- we were trying to figure out who the Christians were that we're trying to link up with, and and uh, you know you can say hallelujah, just go around saying hallelujah, and sooner or later somebody's going to respond, you know, and and you you kind of ident- and so you try to identify Christians that way, uh, and and it's somewhat successful sometimes, sometimes not. But in the spiritual realm, angels and demons, they can look right at you and they say, oh, that's, that guy's sealed. Ah, that guy's sealed with the Spirit. Let's see what we can do. Or, you know, as it would be. And so we're marked in the spiritual realm. Are we also, though, making our mark by living consistent with our faith in Jesus? While the sealing of the Spirit is not really visible, its effects ought to be. Non-believers especially ought to be able to see and sense something different from the way we walk and talk. Doesn't that make sense if you're a Christian that there'd be something different about you? That you, you've been radically changed? That you are not, you're separate from the world? You're in the world but not of the world? And, and you know, maybe people aren't coming up to you every few minutes and saying, yeah, there's just something different about you. But, but I think, you know, that, that there ought to be enough about us that is different and unusual, maybe even weird, that people aren't, you know, surprised when they, oh, you're a Christian. Okay, now that makes sense. Now I understand why uh, you don't laugh at those jokes and you don't cuss and you don't do these other things that everybody's involved. Not that those things make you a Christian, but, you know, there's a difference and, and people ought to be able to see that. The angels went out and they killed in the city. Their actions in this vision, again, as I said, represented what would happen shortly at the hands of the Babylonian army. Then he said to me, verse 9, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed, the city full of perversity. For they say, the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. As for me also, my eye will neither spare nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own head. Bloodshed and perversity summarize Jewish society. 
we would say perhaps violence and immorality, we are getting right there as a society. People wonder, where is America in Bible prophecy? Well, I just, I've told you before, if the rapture happened right now, I believe our nation would be pretty devastated. Whatever we might think about the state of Christianity in America, there are just a lot of Christians in our country, and they're in the military, they're in the government, they're everywhere. Uh, and, and the rapture would decimate and devastate our country. Those left behind would have to fall in line with some kind of global government. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the United States wouldn't really be, in my mind, much of a world power anymore uh, without... To, to say nothing of the fact that uh, great deception and evil will be let loose on the world at that time as well. Now, we talked about the worldview of the Jews last week. It was the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. Neither of those things was true. How does it help to blame God for pain and suffering? Do you ever think about that? Uh, I've been in plenty of situations where uh, people are dying or have died or they're just suffering and, and so have many of you. And, and people, some people blame God. They, you know, they, I guess that, you know, they, they, they have a sense that God could be doing something about that physically uh, you know, he could be healing that person, he could be saving that person, but he's not. And so it's God's fault. But why blame God? If you eliminate God, then what hope is there? What help is there? There's none. There's none whatsoever. I studied existential philosophy whose worldview is essentially that if there is a God, he has forsaken his creation and we are now on our own. The conclusion of that way of thinking is that life is absurd at best. It has no meaning or purpose. Great starting point, huh? So, so what do you do when somebody's dying? Oh, you know, now you don't even have anybody to be mad at. Oh, somebody's dead. Oh, well, so what? Life has no meaning. It has no purpose. It's, it's a wonder he lived this long. And then you go, you know, we're just not wired that way. Uh, and, and so I don't think people really, you know, they don't really understand that, that blaming God doesn't help. It says here, God would recompense their deeds on their own head. There's a personal responsibility for our actions. I say there, therefore, must be free will. Do I understand my free will and God's sovereignty? No. I'm not asked to understand it, thankfully. We were talking about this a little bit before the study tonight. Uh, we believe that God is a trinity, a triunity. Am I asked to understand it? No. Uh, it's just presented to me in the scripture. Uh, God is sovereign? Absolutely. Man has free will? Sure. How does that work? You tell me. No, actually, don't tell me. Because when you start to tell me, you fall into one camp or other, uh, and you just, you, you know, in trying to understand it, you eliminate one of the other positions. And I've ventured now into a realm of extra biblical speculation that does no one any good. Verse 11, just then the man clothed with linen who had the inkhorn at his side reported back and said, I have done as you commanded me. Those to be spared were now properly marked. The killing could begin. One day the very last believer of the church age in which we live is going to be saved and sealed with the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus will resurrect and rapture his church. After that, the great tribulation can begin. And so we see that parallel. In the meantime, as I said earlier, you are marked to make your mark. 
that's another way of saying, you know, like we like to say, you're changed to bring change. But, but you're marked. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, I, I might not be able to see it, but when somebody tells me they're a Christian, I think, oh, yeah, yeah, now I see. Yeah, you have such a, you know, your countenance and your words and your walk, it all makes sense now. But in the spiritual realm, you're marked. And you can go out and make a mark on others, on the world around you, uh, as you just walk with the Lord. Amen? Amen. All right, Ezekiel.